always a pleasure talking to you. A very good friend. Just two buddies uh, met and lived uh, a lot of their life in uh, Down Under. Uh, felt there was a need, there was a market for deeper conversations. Uh, we also, uh, given our, our East European background, I think we do have a certain uh, fiber for for the good, for the uh, authentic, and for the everlasting. And uh, just two buddies having a chat about things that matter, things that stand the, the test of time. And without having any uh, pedigree, just uh, some guys sharing some opinions yeah. about some uh, valuable uh, pieces of information, some books, usually. <laughs> Yeah, so long, long story short, we review books um, and recommend our, our listeners, those who couldn't decipher this 40-second uh, monologue, <laughs> then uh, here's a bit of quick summary. So yeah, we talk about classic books, and, and it's good that you did the little monologue, because today's book is, is right. very much focused on monologues, so it will be interesting to see how you like that idea. Today we are talking about Ayn Rand's or Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Uh, I've seen mixed opinions on how to pronounce her name. So the Soviet Union, uh, and I don't know anything about this book, by the way. Uh, you always amaze me with coming up with things uh, that I've never thought were I've never heard of as being classics. But uh, clearly, my my knowledge is limited. <laughs> it's a, a pen name. It's it's. I'm not really sure mm. how she came up with it. Her original name is is, is Russian. She's Russian originally, um, that moved over to the United States at a very young age, just after the Soviet Revolution became or at, at the early stages of the Soviet Empire. Now, let's trail back on how I know about this book and why I think it's a classic. Yep. So I, love a good I have story. a story for you. And the story goes like this. Uh, brilliant. Uh, a story goes like this. I was in the United States of America studying and I was looking for scholarships so I can prolong my studies. And one of the scholarships I found was an essay competition on Ayn Rand's <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. And I was like, I never heard of the book, but I look it up and I, you know, I give it a shot. It couldn't be difficult, you know, American education, whatever, it's easy. Well, the book is about 1200 pages long and I couldn't get further than the first page. So I was like, holy shit, this is, this is insane. I never heard of this book. I have to look it up. Apparently, Americans love right. this book, and it's a very, very popular book. And I decided I have to read it at one point because I obviously failed the essay competition. I never <laughs> got the scholarship, but I still had it in my mind that one and day did you, I will actually? read it and understand why this is a classic. Now, <laughs> uh, I, I get it. I, I get, get why it's different. I, I'm not saying it's a good book. But I do understand the value it has for our generation and future generations. I'd say the biggest thing about this book is that it essentially fucks with your head a lot. Like it, it reframes a lot of the conversations that you probably hear day by day and changes the perspective of what these conversations mean. I'll give you a bit more context around it once we go into the synopsis. But to start off with, um, if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just talk about Ayn Rand's history yeah. where she's from so, and that gives you an idea i was reading i was reading that this book is kind of was. from the early okay. uh from the mid 50s or, or or almost the 60s so um i can imagine already attention attention Correct. that we keep on talking about between, so. uh 
well, during the Cold War. And I think you already mentioned something about being iconic to a lot of Americans. And I, I read between the lines something around the stress that it puts on on individualism, which I think resonates a lot with the with the US, right? Uh, especially the conservative side. So I'm really keen to hear more uh, about the background. So tell me. The story itself is actually let, let's go back into Ayn Rand's story um, background and then I'll talk about the story. So Ayn Rand herself is born in, in Russia, specifically in the Soviet Union. I believe she was born while the Soviet Union was already there and she grew up and, and studied there. And then shortly after she graduated, she just kind of moved to the U.S. with her parents. She was very young, so I don't think she's done herself much for this move. I think it's her parents managed to, to uh, escape. And for those who don't know, Soviet Union was a dictatorship at that point. Soviet Union was a dictatorship in general. And it was heavy on collectivization. Yeah, until the end, more or less, um, collectivization and nationalization and all sort of, you know, very, very collective, very group-like thinking, which put a lot of pressure on individuals and resulted in some horrible mm. crimes Just against humanity, if I can put it that way. No, so, I was going to say, as a parenthesis, I'm sure we'll get to this book eventually, well, very tough book, um, uh, basically the Gulag Ar Archipelago. Mm -hmm. uh, by Solzhenitsyn. It's probably the most uh, vivid uh, uh, yeah. uh, this depiction of it's what happened in the Soviet common. Union that I think uh, mm -hmm. we should cover at one point in our series. But sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I just wanted to plug that in. Stay tuned. Sorry, but Ayn Rand, yeah? Sure. Yeah, absolutely, sure. So Ayn Rand went to the US with her parents and her parents, I think, pretty obviously hated the Soviet Union and communism. And she was kind of raised up with having the, <laughs> the lady hate boner for, for collectivism and communism and all that jazz. So uh, she was she was absolutely against everything that the government does. She was the type of person that thinks that if the government does something, it's equals socialism. You know, she just wants everyone <laughs> to leave her alone and just let her do her thing. And to her credit, she did uh, throughout her life she did she did work very hard and it seems like she did achieve what she achieved by her own and she never asked for anyone's help if any what someone offered her help then then she might or she might not take it but generally she was not never complained so you know at least she was consistent with her own beliefs whether she's actually right or whether she's she's is wrong about things is a different question her identity is not very popular her ideology is not very popular because it's it's very individual heavy. Like she doesn't believe in like group collective goals. She doesn't seem to believe that you know anyone that talks about representing a group does it with good intention. Everyone seems mm -hmm. to be selfish, and you'll see that in the book as well. So in generally the book itself, and let's go into the book now, is about a railroad executive called Dagny Taggart. That's that's a lady, by the way. I never heard of the name Dagny. Did you say, uh, sorry, name, did you say da Daphne? Really matter. So essentially Daphne? The, the book is focused on how like Dagny. That. Right, Dagny. Dagny, Dagny, which Dagny with G, but honestly, it's, it's, it's probably the same as Daphne. I think they talk about it in the book. I don't exactly remember. So the, it's, it's, the story is about her struggle against an authoritarian government, which is, you know, explicitly leaning more and more towards the collectivization, nationalization, the Soviet Union model. And 
the book itself is is about 1200 pages long um, i listened to it on audiobook which just which took about 60 hours and uh, most of the book is is which is huge for those who don't know our average book on audible is about 10 to 15 hours long listening time this was four times as long and essentially the book is is a collection of monologues it's just characters monologuing on and on and on and on there's a point when there's a three hour long monologue which translating into page jump is about 60 pages of monologuing so that's like a, a marathon of 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 speech and uh, as a result and because Okay, so everyone in the book is is pretty egotistical and pretty selfish yes. and unlikable. Everyone's basically an asshole. And that's very common with Ayn Rand's characters. Good guys, bad guys equally are just assholes. So, you know, if you cannot relate <laughs> to, to characters like that, I don't blame you because I don't, I don't think I could either. So uh, as a result, I, I developed something I call book home syndrome, which is the phenomenon when you read a really, really long and really, really bad book but you invested so much time in it that you start to convince yourself that it's actually a good book because you're like, okay, I just wasted half of my life reading this, but now I, it, something good well, has to happen. And then sometimes something good happens, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of nice. And like, I don't oh, know yeah, necessarily if it's a, a, good it's a good book or, <laughs> and I'm challenging you now, or no. it's the fact that you feel good about yourself for putting up with the marathon of going to the end through this uh, excruciating pain. <laughs> Exactly. 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 Like if you run a marathon, going back to the marathon one, and you spend the last 30 <laughs> minutes trying not to shit yourself, then, then you're still like, you know what? That last 30 minutes was great. Although it, it was not. It, it definitely was Is not. that the so, reason why it's kind of like what Bookholm syndrome is? So, <laughs> is that the reason why it's called Atlas Shrugged? Is there an element of genuine suffering here? <laughs> Just pretty. Well, no, no. No, no, that's that's part of our, part of the monologues they have in the book, and they explain what Atlas Shrugged is. And uh, essentially, you know, the the book is 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 a struggle. It's it's a very economic driven um, satire, or I guess fiction book that that talks about rhetoric and how people, you know, try to like struggle for that political and capital power. So it is. It is very much that type of book. If you ever like watch Dallas, it's a really old series. It's probably will ring your bell. It's 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 not that exciting in terms of topic. Yeah. But here's the thing, and this is what where my book home syndrome kicks in, and I can tell you that I think it's a good book. This book is extremely right. motivating. <laughs> it's so inspirational. It's it's like every character that's successful there is is successful in spite of everyone else. Every industrialist that's in the book and achieves something, they achieve it while everyone else is like, you will never achieve it, you will never be successful, you will fail, and they do it. And the idea that you listen to them talk about it and how they actually get from you know, zero to hero, it's incredibly captivating and motivating. You're like, <laughs> fuck yeah, I can do this. I can do so, anything I want. And, and that's very much what I and, think and popular makes in the US. And this is a shout out to Peter Thiel, uh, Zero to One. <laughs> we should probably link it in, which was uh, was effectively right, right? Uh, the idea that um, oh, absolutely, you have to you have to put in. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's 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 very much that you know. Yeah, you have it, to you have to it, go through a lot of uh, pain and suffering in this creative and process, and uh, you have to. It's probably against all odds 
right, that you do these things. And you also admit, which I think is very honest, maybe that's why people like it. I know that that's part of the American culture is um, admitting that everybody has individual goals and, and by default, they may be antagonistic. So they've set up a structure, right, that acknowledges the fallibility of the individual, yeah, I, I, like I think if you think so. of the Constitution I, yeah. um, and, and how, how things, checks and balances are in place. It's really admitting that we're all uh, corruptible, in essence, we're all human, <laughs> and then uh, and tries to balance that out, knowing that we're all individuals with, uh, with very egotistical goals. I get it. I get it. But it's f- fascinating. How did you feel reading something... Did yeah, you uh, empathize with the characters going through these journeys of winning against all odds? I okay, so a, a little spoiler: <laughs> it isn't always winning, right? It's it's more of a so it's winning against all odds is probably an exaggeration. I. I, I got it. I got it. It's not like I would look up to any of these characters, but I totally understand where they are coming from. And I think just to go back to the individualism thing is is why this book is interesting is, as I said, it fucks with your head. It really reframes a lot of the talk about groups and collectives, like how something is good for a nation. When someone says this is good for us or good for a nation, do they really mean that? Or are they just using that to leverage and, and build something for themselves. You know, this is a classic corrupt politician um, uh, idea that, you know, politicians don't really care about their voters. They just they just want to like fatten up their own pockets and then uh, talk about how they help the, the country so that you can vote for them again. So it's, and, and, and there is some truth to it. I do think that a lot of, in one way, what I think Ayn Rand was wrong about is that, she believed that the industrialists, the productive members of society, the, the people that own the factories are, are, are always the good guys or they are always, you know, they're always the ones that make changes. And she didn't really think of like monopolies um, using their power to, you know, get political votes and stuff. So there, there's a lot of, lot of stuff there that you can so if i if say, i rephrase well, what you if i rephrase what you're saying is and, that uh, she's taking a very very okay. uh pro-capitalist approach saying that and this is probably a reaction to what happened in communism right where property was collectivized and the most productive citizens of the country their assets got confiscated and shared with everybody and that led to effective hunger because the people that had any skill uh, to producing goods, no longer were able to do it. Uh, so it's taking the opposite view, which is might be a bit naive, a bit utopian, saying Definitely. that these industrial people, uh, which are productive indeed in their allocation of capital and, and resources in creating goods, you know, they're not entirely innocent either, and they're also corruptible as well. So that side doesn't shine through necessarily. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could you could blame this on the era that she brought it in, you know, her background as well. As I said, she just had a massive hate boner against mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. So, you know, she was very black and white. And, and you know, if you ever watch interviews with her, like she's not a very pleasant person. Like she's actually incredibly rude and, and very honest, very straightforward person, which you can appreciate, but she's she's not nice to be around. Okay. So, uh, it, it's it's a very interesting character, and I guess, I guess her 
like, you know, we can go into the economics of it. That she that she actually assumes that most of these companies are not monopolies, and there is all sort of other things happening. But there's there's no point of that. Um, in terms of in terms of why I think it, it worth reading is is because you know it, it really like reframes everything, and she talks about slogans, propaganda, and and just ideas in a complete different light. So a lot of the stuff that you can hear right now today from different countries appears in the book, but completely reframed to, you know, almost corrupted. In a way, it's like how 1984, you know, did like the Ministry or Department of Peace. And it was actually like a war machine. The whole point of the department was just mm. how to wage wars. But it was called the Ministry of Peace or, you know, the Ministry. I don't, I don't remember the other ones as well, but it's, it's all like corrupted and twisted out. So she kind of like does that as well with a lot of these slogans, like whenever a politician says like, oh, I do it for for uh, this group or that group, she's like, are you really? And she just kind of like turns it inside out. So yeah, it, it's, it's very much that. And uh, that <laughs> makes me even more cynical and I'm already very, very cynical. Well, I don't so, uh, you know around and ask whether this is helping you uh, cultivate your critical thinking or, or people reading it to some extent, right? the bullshit detector that you were mentioning does it and that's probably one of the the fascinating things about fiction is that it helps us with development of certain skills that uh, you wouldn't probably um, experience uh, developing um, um, if you did only kind of non-fiction or doing math textbooks or so on you're actually living through this fiction through the characters these antagonistic situations where your mind is forced to critically assess them and and call call bluff or call um, call them suspicious. In a way, it reminds me another another reference, another nod is to the trial by uh, by Kafka, right? Which uh, again is a story about a, an individual versus an anonymous machine that in that case is yeah. just really absent. It's more its absence and lack of care for the individual that makes it uh, deadly uh, to some extent or treacherous to some extent here, but the motives are not as obvious. Here you're saying that the the goals are diametrically opposed is, is the stance, right, uh, that she's taking between between uh, the collective and the individual. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's, very, it's very hard like to believe that, right, because uh, the collective is is a large synthesis of, of a lot yeah, of individual yeah, goals. Right? You see it all the time. You, you get a bunch of people get together. They, uh, you need internet. I need internet. We we build uh, you know we build some cables between us, right? And that's how cable and internet companies started uh, sharing some files on the on our hard drives. Um, it's uh, collectivity is, is an expression. Sure, sure. Well, for, from Ayn oh, perspective. Sorry, but what what I understand is is Ayn Rand would probably say that the internet companies would would probably realize that there's a profit in in building networks in large neighborhoods, so they would just build it and people would jo join in and these companies would race with each other to provide the best service. You know the usual capitalist model, right? And in terms of the collective, it's it worth noting that she's not saying that people together cannot make good decisions. She's saying that people that do things for the collective don't actually do it for the collective they are doing it for themselves right um when you say i want to stand up for xyz group you often do it because you benefit from it from one way or another and that contrast between individual goals and collective goals is often corruption it's often 
causes damage than actual good things. But again, this is 50s, very black and white, very much, you know, communism versus non-communism, I guess, market economy. But I think we need to remember, and, I don't know exactly what, if you are going to cover this, but the, the, the historical context is and, very important again, because it was probably in a, in a part of the Cold War where it wasn't really obvious necessarily that communism was bad and capitalism was good, right? And a lot of people, even in the US, were probably attracted to the ideas of... Uh, of, of socialism, right? Of, of uh, pooling assets, of uh, the idea of this this uh, prosperity brought on by equal share of sure. lack of inequality is very attractive. And in Europe, uh, that that uh, that was playing out a lot more uh, equally between between the two. So it's really like a statement, right? Of uh, an expression, uh, ars poetica of uh, individual freedom, from what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And I guess if we look at today's world and what would happen today, you look at uh, rhetoric against or about billionaires and how they earn too much money while the poor are, you don't earn that much money. And, you know, redistribution, taxation, that sort of stuff. So you can look at it and say, well, is it, is it what we want to do? Are we just going to take all the, uh, all the billionaires' money redistributed and once we run out of money we'll take the millionaires money and then the hundred thousand years money and then it's all the race to the bottom because that's one of the ideas what will happen while others say well no you need to have a fair taxation system and everyone needs to have a living wage and all that and that's fine you know this this is a part of a political discussion i just feel like you know if ayn rand would be alive today she would be like no billionaires should earn as much as as much money as they want and everyone should have the opportunity to become a billionaire, basically. Everyone should be able to, you know, enter the market and all that. So she's very much what we often call anarcho-capitalist. So she doesn't want a state. She just wants every individual just to do whatever they want. And uh, to be fair, like, she never she never claimed she's an NCAP. She never, never thought she was, like, uh, anarchist and capitalist and whatever. She was a complicated woman. Mm. So, um, do do you see this that's, book that's uh, kind of still relevant today? And how how do you, how do you see that kind of play out just in today's situation? Uh, why would anyone want to read it? I why don't would, think. Why, there why is... would anyone want to read it today? What? Well, I I think I think the big part of it is is the rhetoric, um, how people talk about wealth, production, life text that sort of stuff you know how people want to improve society how we want to make things better that that part is very much relevant so what Ayn Rand is talking about in the book is, is the same rhetoric devices the same slogans the same logic and you know the same flow of, of thoughts as, as we see today it, it hasn't changed at all in terms of the actual backstory the railroad, this lady who runs the railroad, and she's so much in love with it, she would probably marry it if she could. It, it's not so much relevant, like no one cares about railroads today. Absolutely not. And I know they yeah. made a movie out of it, which was kind of like Don't watch mediocre. The movie. It, it got very mixed reviews because it was trying to shove this, like, eh, probably not. I mean, it's it, it's trying to shove the, the, the railroads into like a futuristic setting, and it's just like, nah, it's, it doesn't really work. Um, with, with, with rhetoric, I think it's pretty good. So when you listen to the monologues and how people think and what they believe success means and what fairness, equity, 
whatever means, I think that that context is relevant. But if you don't like the railroad talk or or you don't like the you know smelting of iron talk, which there's a lot of sounds like a game on Monopoly, um, right? You gotta buy the rail, you gotta buy the hotels, and that's okay (laughs) because if you do, winner take all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because. Yeah, because this was in the 50s, so there was no internet. The, the, the key center of, of, um, of the economy was, was production and, and stuff like railroads, factories, car production. It, I, I feel like even real estate wasn't as much of a big thing or as important as it is now. Mm. Um, and, but uh, but and is, uh, I don't know if you wanted to cover something okay, else. Right? Yeah. From what I'm, I'm just reading between the lines a little bit here. It sounds like she was quite controversial. Uh, don't know, there's something about her admiration for serial killer or something. I don't know what made her so so such a controversial figure. Okay, I I don't know about that. I I don't know about about her. I I think she was well. She was as I yeah. said. She was basically an anarchist and capitalist. So she didn't believe in like borders. So she made. Uh, thoughts she made comments about how you know if you are uh you know uh, uh some sort of local native and people come in and live next to you and you don't want them to live next to you then you can suck it and uh, so it, that was re- related to you know how native americans were you know uncomfortable with settlers coming in um and to be fair she did say that she she hates violence so she kind of had this framework where everything needs to be non-violent so she would probably stand up for a lot of these you know what we call an invasion or what we call a you know aggressive settlement or overtaken if if it comes with violence um she she was massively pro-abortion because again she said everything is about individuals so if an individual wanna you know, cut the baby out at eight months, eight and a half months. She's perfectly happy with that as long as they take the okay, responsibility so she, she for it. She didn't see much. Uh... Um, she she said a lot of stuff. Okay. She was That's massively a... pro-Israel. <laughs> no, I was going to just comment on the abortion part. So she didn't she see individual uh, freedom required for the, the fetus there too early <laughs> at eight months. <laughs> no. No, yeah. because like... No, I, I don't think she did. I, I think she just... I'm, I'm not saying she was pro-late-term abortion. She wasn't that specific about it. These are these are almost always just like comments that she just throw around. Uh, she wasn't that focused on it. Mm. I think she just looked at it from extreme liberty. Right? She, she looked at uh, people should have the freedom to do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt someone else. Like She was massively anti-violence, but she was also very pro-choice. Like and, and whatever that entails, right? Um, essentially, as long as I don't, you know, hit you in the head with a hammer, I could do whatever I want, you know. Interesting. And, but is uh, Israel not? An... That's it. You mentioned and Israel. Is Israel not a collective no, goal was... to some extent because it's it's a state? Of course, many people want wanted that settlement to occur, but ultimately, well. Well, her perspective was, if you look at the interview, is that that at that point of time, Israel already had the settlement. They already had the kibbutzes set up. And, you know, as, as a country and, you know, the, the, what is it called? The white paper, whatever the UK signed with the Jewish community mm. and uh, or the white book, I think it was called. Um, and, and the creation of Israel was not not the question. The question was, 
are we are we allowing or are we letting these kibbutzes, these Israeli settlements, to live as as they are? And Iran was like, yeah, of course. You know, they they settled into a place where no one lived. They didn't they didn't do any any violence. They didn't they didn't hurt anyone. They just wanted to make a living. And then um, that was the time when things like the I think the six day I I'm, I might be mixing up six or seven day war happened. There was a lot of like conflicts and you know. A lot of um, not Hamas, but whatever the Palestinian front was, like started attacking a lot of the settlements. And Iran was like, okay, so they are the right. aggressors, so they are the wrong. They are wrong, and that's kind of like how we're thinking. Uh, uh, plug for uh, listening to this book uh, as an audio book, which oh, uh, cool. if you do listen to it, it will take longer than reading it, right? Uh, as you said, it just it just takes longer for someone to read it out loud versus skimming it through it. But a massive uh, achievement. Yeah. And um, yeah, like a, yeah, basically definitely. a cornerstone of uh, American individual freedom, and uh, maybe a bit conservative. <laughs> I I don't know if if Ayn Rand would call herself conservative. She was just like it's all about liberty, right? So especially with, if you think about like yeah. the whole abortion thing, I feel like she was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, and yeah, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll try to add some links to our show notes just in case you don't know. You want to get the book, you know, interested checking it out. Um, yeah, no, thank you. I wanted to Is say thanks to you, Norm, for uh, introducing me with this book. Uh, I'm always uh, amazed of how complementary our, our views of of literature are. And I'm, I'm always learning new things. So really grateful for that. Thanks a lot. And thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>